And when I was down there, I think I was 20 minutes into my first morning and I knew I was had. I knew I was screwed. I knew I wasn't going to hook one all week. And I didn't. <laughs> and if not for a couple of spirited days of outrageously good trout fishing, that that would have been the all-time ass-whipping ass fishing trip of my career. That was George Cook sharing a story from one of those trips. It's been a long time coming, so happy to share my conversation today with uh, George Cook. This is the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, episode 131. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing, fly tying, and much more. Hey, how's it going, everyone? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. If you've been enjoying the podcast and want to uh, support the show, head over to wetflyswing.com slash members and sign up for the Member Society. We have some live events that uh, may be coming to your neck of the woods. Signing up for the Member Society will be a vote and direction to head towards your hometown. If you want to hear more, just uh, shoot on over to wetflyswing.com slash members and support the journey and, uh, and this show. Today we hear from George Cook, who has long been leading the steelhead and salmon game in the Northwest in Alaska. George shed some light on the Northwest Spay Game history. We hear about many of the greats, including uh, Jimmy Green, Jim Teeny, and Jim Vincent. Um, I really enjoyed this one, and I really hope you do too. Uh, I have a little bonus at the end of the show, so stay tuned uh, until we wrap this one up and check out that little bonus at the end. Before we get started, let's hear from our sponsors. Since 1977, the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal has long been considered the Angler's Magazine, with original how-tos and technical articles written by the best trout and steelhead anglers in the West. They are committed to sharing exceptionally written essays, fiction, poetry, and in-depth guides to fly tying and fly fishing. FTJ is one of my go-to magazines, and if you haven't checked it out recently, you can get started today by calling 1-800-541-9498 or heading over to the web at ftjangler.com. Gotfishing.com is your trusted source of information with access to the world's best fishing trips. You'll never pay a dime extra for the trip you book, and in many cases, less than advertised. Find out where Gotfishing could take you by heading over to Gotfishing.com today. That's G-O-T-Fishing.com, or reach them by phone at 208-630-3373. Gotfishing.com, the easiest place to start your next fishing adventure. So, without further ado... Here is George Cook. Uh, how's it going, George? Good. Good. Good to, good to have you on the show. We, we've we been, I think I ran into you last, maybe at one of the, at the Spay Clave, I think a while back. I can't remember, but uh, you've been on my list for a while to, to get you on on the show, so I'm happy you're here to chat today about Spay and everything. How, how, are, how are things going uh, with you these days? Uh, good. Yeah, things are good, and uh, it's not raining. It's sunny outside here in early March, and we'll take it, won't we? That's right. That's right. And you got it sounds like you got a trip, uh, you're saying, heading to Mexico. So maybe if we have time, we'll chat about that. Um, I did want to just start us off, take us way back, you know, the way back machine to uh, how you first got into fly fishing. Can you give us a little rundown how that all started? Well, I started fly fishing when I was 11, and um, I got dropped off in Last Chance, Idaho, by a guide buddy even though I was 11, he was like, I think 22 or four. And he dropped me off on the Henry's fork with six green Drake dry flies. 
during the green Dre catch, which is pretty spectacular up on that particular ditch. And, um, I think by five o'clock I'd lost every one of those to outsized trout walked across the street to the famous Will Godfrey's fly shop and had just enough money to buy two standard Adams, which I think I bought in size 10 or 12 that enabled me to get through the day to about 8 PM when my buddy, Sam good, the guide came and fetched me. And that was day one of my fly fishing career. <laughs> nice. So, so you had some, <laughs> he had some fish on, but nothing landed on day one. Well, I lost, I, I think I lost six or seven of my eight flies and, um, you know, it was day one. So I certainly, I certainly had some action, but I don't think I had a lot to show for it. Nice. Nice. So, so back to 11 years old. So how do you go from 11 to take us a little bit, just briefly from 11 to, you know, when you get into the fly fishing more as a industry profession, what, what did, when did that all happen? Well, I moved from. Oklahoma, uh, to Washington state. My, my dad was with the VA and, uh, I remember getting here knowing I was in the land of steelhead and salmon and I would, I would ply waters for quite a while before I would catch my first steelhead on, on gear and then subsequently on fly. Um, and, uh, you know, at that point, uh, you know, I was pretty ardent Northwest fisherman, be it steelhead some some salmon and a lot of lake fishing in eastern washington which um, inevitably would become part of my career guiding and outfitting in eastern washington from 1982 to 1987 and um, that was one of three kaufman streamborn stores uh there was you know that would become two in washington state and then the original one in tiger to oregon and um, a lot of industry guys have come out of there. I mean, in a lot of clothes, a lot of ways, we were like the AAA farm club of of the fly fishing industry, at least in the Pacific Northwest. And there's a lot of guys still in the biz that came out of there, literally. So um, at that juncture, um, in those years, I guided in Alaska, guided in greater Bristol Bay for two operations uh, Lagnac Lodge on the Lagnac and then, um, Mission Lodge, which was called a Licknick Mission Lodge back then, which was a fly out operation. So I guided for a couple of gigs up there, which, you know, certainly launched, um, you know, a greater knowledge of, you know, fly fishing, certainly in Alaska, but, you know, for salmon, in general, which certainly transcribed to various endeavors, steelhead fishing and tying flies on the, you know, the popsicle, the showgirl, the blue moon, a bunch of this stuff that became particularly the, the popsicle that became household names and steelhead fly tying came out of those, those guide years up there. Um, I was recruited to Sage in late 1987 um, to replace Steve Ray Jeff, certainly not in a rod designing mode, but as a, in another capacity running sports shows and running schools, which Sage ran aggressive casting schools uh, most of the 1980s into the early 90s. 
before dealers took on a much more profound role in teaching classes. And so I ran sports shows, ran schools at Sage, wrote some level of catalog copy um, on broad descriptions for about three years and then got handed a rep job for Oregon and Washington. And did that for a couple of years and then Alaska got added, which is, um, which was great because I'd kind of always hoped to be involved in Alaska in some capacity with Sage. So that came about. So there's kind of a little background on that. That's awesome. That's awesome. So, so, and then 87, um, so I guess, yeah, in that period, um, and the one thing you didn't mention there was the uh, development of Spay, which kind of over here, at least the Northwest Spay game. And when did that when, when did that start up for you? When, when did you first start seeing that? Because that was sometime in the 80s, right? No, I think it was going on, Dave, in the 80s, but it was going on almost in a secret society forum. Uh you had a couple of guys in Oregon, in Washington State, that were tinkering with it. You know, Jimmy Green being a notable name, Mark Bachman, um, just a couple of guys that were starting to kind of tinker with it. And a lot of the influence was coming out of British Columbia, largely out of Mike Maxwell, who was a colorful character of the era. And Spay down here kind of got percolating right around 1990. Um, Jimmy Green, Harry Lemire, these guys were really the forefathers of it in Washington State. And by 1991, it had kind of started to get on the board. And people like me were starting to fish with those rods, Deck Hogan, they were all kind of picking them up and playing with them in the, so it was, you know, in 91, it was certainly in its infancy in this state, in this region. But as those years accelerated from 1991, it, it became very popular. And in 1994 and 95 was becoming more commonplace. And by 1998 and 2000, I, I wouldn't say it wholly replaced the single hander on, steelhead streams in the Northwest, but it largely replaced the single hander, you know, rather a guy was on the Skykomish Sox gadget in the winter, say the Deschutes or Grand Ron or Idaho's Clearwater in the fall, the two hander was becoming a fairly omnipresent tool. And a lot of that acceleration, Dave, it's, you know, it was general popularity. Yes. But a lot of it had to do with the fly lines and the lines, took huge development steps from 1991 to 2001. There was, there was huge acceleration in line development in that 10 years. And that I will tell you, you know, took these things from, you know, novel, you know, something, the British or the Canadians or the, or the Swedes kind of had and did and used to something that we could get our hands around and actually go afield in an effective manner mm-hmm. it was the line development. That, that was it. And, and who were the, the kind, I know Rio was, was in that, in there, were there a few line companies here that were making some of those first lines? 
Well, you know, when the game started, when the game started, let's just say 1990, you know, people were still trudging around, you know, finding a double taper nine or double taper 10, which, you know, was possible to find in the United States, was more likely to find in British Columbia, possibly Eastern Canada, and certainly the United Kingdom. And Jim Vincent, the founder of Rio, brought the first real Northwest Bay line to the table, and it was called the Wind Cutter. And in 1991, he had kind of built one on his own. There was a handful of individuals in the West who had access to the formula. And one of those individuals, an ER doctor from uh, Boulder, Colorado, by the name of Dr. Cliff Watts, who I knew, who told me about these lines. And I said, well, build me three of them. I want to target these three rods, and I will trade you the spay rod of your choice for it. Well, that was a can't-miss deal for that guy. And he built me one that basically set up for a 7136 sage. He built me one for the, you know, the 30-06 of the day, the 9140. And I think he built me a third one. Golly, I'm kind of struggling to remember this now. But I think the third one was gauged to an eight-weight, um, one of our European eight-weights, 8123 or 8124. It was one of those animals. And he built me one for that. But that line excelled on the 9140 in the 7136 with that 9140 kind of being the default winter steelhead rod in Washington state as well as Oregon. And so those lines finally gave us, you know, basically a non double taper approach to a two hander and those lines would set the stage for looped versions that would finally put us into the winter steelhead game in fine fashion, David, in that we could start putting sink tips on them. And those sink tips could be type three, type six, various and sundry cut up things, you know, from, you know, either Rio or scientific angler, or even Cortland, even crude things like, you know, lead core. I think it was LC 13 that Cortland had had for years you know, various things that were out there could now be cut, looped, spliced, and placed on these lines. And now we were fishing sink tips. And now the winter steelhead game was coming into full view with the spay rod. Hmm. That's cool. And, and yeah. what, what year was that after, I know you had the early wind cutter days. When when did that kind of go away in the first year where really you started to see, I guess, a factory-made uh, kind of the Skagit type of line? Well, those factory wind cutters would come on the scene, if I remember right. I think it was right around 1993. I think it was fall of 93. Those those had become available, and they they were universalizing the game. I mean, it was the line for everybody to have, and uh, with good reason. And those lines were about a 53-foot head. Uh, when you played out a 15 foot tip on it, whether it was floating tip or, you know, a type six, which was a fairly obvious one at the time. And then in the late nineties, right around, 
golly, right around, I'd say 1998, maybe 97, there was a handful of guys that were starting to, I call them the, you know, late night chop shop artist. And these guys were making heads and they were, you know, they were basically making Franken lines, as I kind of called them at the time. And Edward, Scott Howe, um, various and sundriest guys, um, a lot of them being buddies, you know, Ed, Scott, Scott O'Donnell, Deck Hogan, um, you know, Jerry French, these guys, these guys were kind of the kingpins of this chop shop artist movement. And they were working on what would become today's Skagit lines. And these guys were making some fairly, Mike McCune was in on this. That's another guy that was at the heart of it. And they were, they were making lines that were extraordinary in nature. And they were doing it based on not only wanting to cast sink tips, but flies, certain flies, the intruder fly, which those guys, you know, that, mm-hmm. that thing was basically held captive in Leavenworth, Kansas under armed guard, you know, <laughs> and right. Edward would famously literally cut them off when somebody, you know, came to sp- speak to him on the bank, he oh, would literally cut his fly off, put it in his pocket. And he wasn't the only one doing that. Scott Howell was doing the same thing. And, you know, so these lines were getting developed, not just on the basis of lines, sink tip lines, to cast them more effectively, but to be able to cast those sink tips with flies that were absolutely new in design. They were they were revolutionary flies. I mean, they're commonplace today, but people don't realize what went into those flies in order to just get them off the vise on the rod and propelled within a spade cast. And it basically took the development of the Skagit line in order to bring the intruder to life. It really Mm, did. And so these guys were at the forefront of it. And eventually, you know, Jimmy Vincent, again, the founder of Rio, was the guy that took the bull by the horns and, you know, basically <laughs> made a, you know, a pack with these guys to, to bring these things uh, to the commercial market because these guys were guiding. And even though they had personal fishing ambitions of which they all excelled at, they had guiding considerations that in order for them to really, you know, up the game of their clientele, they weren't going to be able to manufacture these things. They didn't have enough time and scotch to do it with. (laughs) And so therefore we're going to have to get them commercially made. And Rio was the obvious choice to do this. And Jim Vincent grabbed it with great vigor. And so I remember, I remember standing in the Dallas airport on my way to Kansas, the whitetail hunt. I think it was around December 1st. 2000, I got a phone call from the buyer at Kaufman's, Jerry Swanson at the time, and I couldn't get a pen out of my briefcase to start scrambling down numbers of the orders that he was putting in for these things because he heard that they were finally going to become available. And even though we announced it, it was, you know, the the inner sanctum knew we were going to do it. 
And I remember just sitting there at baggage claim, writing an order, a giant order on any piece of paper I could find as I'm waiting for my rifle to come off. So that was kind of the start of it. And uh, it, that was 2000, and it, it rolled yeah. from there. Well, actually, it was 2002, to be exact. 2002. But I think those boys were, were building these lines maybe as early as 97, yep. 98, 99. They were, they were building them. And by 2000, it was starting to look like we needed to – we needed to get going on this. And I think it was December of 2002. We shipped mm-hmm. the very first one. There you go. Old you yellow, the old yellow gadgets. Yeah. You shipped yeah. it. That's yeah. aw- that's awesome. Thanks uh, for, uh, it's an amazing story. We've had a ton of steelhead episodes and never fully dug into that. So I love hearing that story. Um, you know, when you think Alaska, obviously there's a huge tie into Alaska, you know, and still to this day, lots of people get their startup in Alaska. Do you think, the popsicle, some of the stuff, the flies you, you know, kind of developed and the intruder. Do you think those flies and, and maybe even the Skagit lines would, would, would have come without you guys being connected to that Alaska thing? I think, I think it would have all shown up on the docket. I don't think it would have shown up, um, as in, intensely or as early without it, because, I tied the first of these marabou flies in 1980, 80, I got to think about this, 1983 was the first of those flies, 1984, 85, those flies were really accelerating. And, you know, I wasn't the first guy to tie with marabou. I mean, Bob Aide and Joe Butork in Washington State, you know, certainly had put stuff on the table. But I was tying stuff that was very specific to Alaska species, largely, you know, kings, silvers, chums in that order, you know, because those were in, you know, sought after game fish and the lodge play of greater Bristol Bay. And there really was nothing on the table prior to 1983 that was Alaska focused for those species. I mean, guys were running around with, you know, whatever was in their steelhead fly, you know, and sure you could catch them on a Thor or an Umqua special yeah. or a Skycomish special. You could catch some silvers and chums on these things, but you weren't, you, you weren't really getting them at the level that we would begin to get them with these flies in 1983, 84, 85. And so I've had numerous people tell me, in fact, I had somebody tell me this last month that, you know, the, this whole intruder thing, if you trace the blood trail, it, it, it inevitably leads back to Alaska, yep. to the popsicle, to those early efforts. And I was on the Alagnac a few years before Ed Deck, Scott House, Scott O'Donnell, um, before those guys would show up on the guide scene there, I was there a few years before them. Hmm. So the stage was set and, you know, catching Kings on spay rods was probably, well, there was, there were some guys doing it prior to, prior to 1992. And they were largely guys from Europe, mm-hmm. usually Brit yep. fishing 15 foot, 10 weights, full sinking double taper lines. Yep. 
and they were catching kings, not so much on the Alagnac, but on the Togiak, the Good News, and the Gannettok. These guys were doing this stuff, but they weren't doing it super effectively because those lines were a pain in the ass at best, and the flies just weren't there yet. They just simply were not there yet. Could they cast with those old 15-foot? They had no problem Well, they didn't have those flies to cast with, but... They, you know, they were probably fishing Atlantic salmon stuff. Yeah. You know, probably, you know, some form of, um, oh, temple dog, which certainly would work and would still work today. In fact, there are flies that are basically steelhead king versions of temple dogs. And I suspect this is what some of these guys were running around with. Because the first guy spotted with spay rods in Western Alaska were definitely the Brits. It was absolutely them, and then they were, you know, they were catching silvers in August. They were catching some level of kings in June and July, but it was fairly primitive in terms of what it would become. And the wind cutter opened it up to where, you know, a 15-foot type 6 sink tip could get employed. And so when you look at 1994, 95, 96, you look at those years, the level of kings getting caught on fay rods in Bristol Bay it, it had gone up, you know, gone up mega. Hmm. Just went up hugely, and it was getting done with type 6 sink tips, which to a lot of people's uh, realization that they wouldn't even have that sink tip in their wallet today. But I can tell you, we were, we were hooking as many of them on a 15-foot, 166-grain, 190 grain, even 150 grain mm-hmm. type six. We were hooking as many kings on that as we would later on T14. Oh, okay. Which, which, you know, because number one, you're never fishing as deep as you think you are. Mm-hmm. You're never fishing as deep as guys with gear are. Mm-hmm. And those kings, well, number one, they ain't all on the bottom, which is fairly obvious as you go through the exercise. And number two, they're rising up to take the fly. Hmm. It's not like a plug that's down there at their level where they basically either eat it or move. Whereas a fly, they've got to lift up and go to it because it generally is not down in there with them. You know, I wouldn't say that that's all, you know, 100%, but I'd say it's largely you're dealing with a fish that is sweeping up to go eat it. And a type 6 tip, you know, I doubt is all that deep down there that's cool even with men's systems and this and that and, and of course you know t14 would come on the scene and you know at first in the you know in the early 2000s you know i think it was somewhere around boy i don't know right around that same 2002 three four period you know we would have our first shot at t14 which was going to sink it at um nine inches a second. So it was basically a third faster than a type six. And it seemed like we were catching more Kings. And I think we were catching, I think what we were really doing is we were catching Kings in water that we had chosen not to try to fish previously. And Scott O'Donnell would bear that out guiding on the Oregon coast that he would, you know, famously state, well, we're fishing plug water now. You know, we fear nothing. We're, we're fishing plug water. And I think what happened to us in Alaska and Kings was 
we started fishing anything we thought looked good. We fished it and we were catching them in water that I don't think previously we had chosen to try. And I know again, that, that Scott certainly went to the Oregon coast and decided that that theory, he, he would prove that theory. And so, yeah, T 14 certainly got deeper, but I'd say in the, in the scheme of things, we were catching just as many on type six, which brings up an interesting point that I was telling a dealer in Oregon the other day that back, you go back to 19 prior to the Feeney 300 line, which revolutionized single-handed fishing. I mean, Jim Teeny, when he brought up that 24 foot 300 Teeny, that 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 gave that literally that took the Indians from bows and arrows <laughs> right to rifles. Yeah, and uh, right to rifles, and that line revolutionized single-handed steelhead salmon fishing. But prior to that line, the number one line the winter steelhead were being caught in Washington, Oregon was, believe it or not, a Cortland 20 foot type three sink tip. No kidding. 20 foot type three sink tip. Not, not scientific angler. Well, they had a 13 foot type four, which was certainly catching some. Yeah. But I can tell you, dude, I, I, I would, I would go to Vegas that that 20 foot type three <laughs> was catching more than the 13 foot type four was. Yep. And, uh, you know, and all that goes to show Dave is that number one, there were fish in the rivers. Number two, there were guys stepping into the ditch and casting, <laughs> which is a prerequisite for <laughs> catching anything. Yep. So, you know, and it also, you know, those, those fish, particularly those winter steelhead, particularly once you get into March and April, with warming water temperatures, those fish are going to move a greater distance mm-hmm. to take a flock. So, yep. you know, when you, when you hear these guys, you know, the occasional guy, you know, be it a Bill McMillan, you know, he said, yeah, I caught, you know, my, my best, my only, my coldest water dry fly steelhead was at 38 degrees. Well, if you kind of look at that and you go, okay, but that's the tip of the iceberg for, you know, trying something and then you drop down to a 20 foot type three, you know, a 13 foot type, you know, type four, which is what that SA line was at that point in time. And then you, you know, get to a 15 foot type six and then 12 and a half feet of T14. You can kind of see what's going on mm-hmm. and water temperature, fish in the river and just angler effort, you know, eventually meets on the curve. Right. Yep. Yep. Wow. So there's, you know, there's some, there's some interesting history and in where this stuff came from and kind of what it did. But back to your question, no doubt Alaska accelerated a number of things. Um, you know, marabou fly development, intruder fly development, uh, the use of, you know, after sink tips, starting with type six, moving into the Skagit theater, in the adaption of, you know, T14 into the game in the steelhead theater, you know, benefited from this greatly. And then those things became, you know, kind of sister, sister fisheries in terms of, you know, flies, sink tips, heads, running line approaches, all the stuff had synergy and kind of fed back and forth off one another and still does today. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's great. No, I love I love how you dug into the Kings. I was going to mention that. Just had some questions on Chinook. Um, maybe before I had a couple that I wanted to ask you on that. You know, specifically for Chinook. Uh, but a quick little note. Uh, so you you know you talk. We all it seems like talk now. The set. You know, the seventy one thirty six or the ninety one forty. When did that little designated designation? When did that start? And which company? Because it seems like everybody uses it now. But back in the day, everybody wasn't using it, right? Yeah, unequivocally. Uh, that's, that's Sage. That is Sage. Yeah. It's, oh yeah. It's been Sage since day one. I mean, Don Green, Bruce Kirshner, the founders of the company, you know, that rather it was a nine foot five weight. That's a five ninety. you know, and, and yeah. nine and a half foot eight weight in eight, nine, six and the two handers, which were developed for Europe originally. I mean, the two handers being built in the U S you know, circa 1980, 1982, 1984, 19, you know, really through basically 1989, most of the two handers being built by U.S. rod companies, namely Sage, Thomas & Thomas, and Loomis, these were all getting shipped to Europe or Scandinavia. But our, our number system you know, 7136, seven weight, 13 foot, six inches, dash four, four, four pieces, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. That that came from the Sage House of Rods and specifically from Don Green. That's it. And it's the most recognizable rod designation today. I mean, you, you know, others put up some pretty funky math that uh, you know, I won't I won't name names and beat on them, but yeah. <laughs> there's there's one to the south of where I'm sitting here in Washington that you know puts up math that you know. That's confusing. <laughs> I'm not sure who thought that one up, but yeah, it's it's harder to keep up with. It's distinctive. I'll give it that, but you know, most people today they see six ninety regardless of rod company. They know that's a nine foot six weight rod. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And now a quick word from our sponsors, GotFishing.com, a boutique booking agency for fishing adventures around the world. GotFishing is unique in working with a small hand-selected group of outfitters from around the world that are known for providing an experience that is second to none. GotFishing can be your trusted source of information with access to the world's best fishing trips. Their sole purpose is to help you plan the most authentic fishing adventure while making sure it fits within your budget. The beauty is that everything they do is 100% free. You will never pay a dime extra for your trip and in many cases, less than advertised. I can attest personally to the service that Got Fishing provides as they have been working with me closely to set my first trip to the Yucatan for saltwater. They have taken care of all the important details and allowed me to avoid worrying about any of the complications. I know Brian and the crew have you covered at Got Fishing. Whether you need a fishing consultant, travel consultant, gear pro, or the like, they have you covered. With top-of-the-line outfitters they represent around the world, they are confident they have just the right trip for you. You can give them a call at 208-630-3373 or head over to gotfishing.com to get started today. Let Got Fishing help you plan the fishing trip you've been dreaming about. Because at Got Fishing, there is nothing we won't do so you don't have to. That's gotfishing.com. FTJ Spring Edition is packed with the best fly tying instruction, fly fishing techniques, destination articles, and fly fishing stories. 
Here are a few of the featured fly tires in the spring edition of the Fly Fishing and Tying Journal. Master fly tire Dave McNeese begins his multi-part tutorial on the secrets of dyeing your own materials. I know this is a hot topic because I've been uh, hearing about it from some of the listeners of the podcast, so this is going to be a big one. This is going to be super helpful. Uh, we find out also how to tie big durable flies for predator uh, predatory fish, an effective uh, cicada pattern, and we hear about a 14-year-old uh, fly tire who's who's kicking some butt out there, uh, lining up sponsors and ambassadors. So we're, we get to hear that story in the uh, in the spring edition. Also, Gary Lewis gives us a little rundown on Diamond Lake as he heads out there, and we're also going to be heading to San Diego with Joe Warren, who talks about tuna, dorado. Wahoo and more. Dave Hughes provides a tribute to Frank Amato in in the the spring edition, and we get an update on the short story contest. Lots of additional content in this one, so uh, head over to ftjangler.com and subscribe so you don't miss any of the tips, tricks, and stories in the next issue. That's ftjangler.com to get started today. Uh, Tell them uh, you heard uh, about the uh, the magazine from the podcast, and I'll figure out a way to make it up to you. Okay, back to the show. So, so on the Kings, this is interesting because we've been, I've been talking to a few people about salmon, and I've been up there a few times. But you know, so for Chinook, you have these things where some places you can catch Chinook on the fly, and some places they just talk like you just can't catch Chinook on the fly. I mean, can you talk a little bit about what it takes to catch a Chinook on the fly? And is it really are there only a handful of good rivers that you can really target Chinook on the fly? Well, Dave, there's two ways to look at that. Um, there's no question that globally, globally, the Alaska kings are the most bitey. They're the most grabby. There's there's really no arguing that. Um, I think the British Columbia kings, you know, are the, are the, um, the silver medal winner. Mm. And then the bronze medal winner that might actually be the gold winner is are the Russian kings. Oh. The, of the Russian Far East, Kamchatka. And while there's some really good outfitters over there, Will Blair comes to mind as, you know, one of the pioneers over there still operating. Those guys have got really valid king runs, but they've never drilled down, peeled back the onion and went after it. They've kind of fooled with it, but they haven't gone after it. And those kings, I suspect because of the fact that they're essentially, you know, you know, call it what you want, but latitude wise Pacific rim, you know, they're a land bridge version of the Alaska Kings or vice versa, you know, however you want to play that. Mm-hmm. Um, I suspect that that is, you know, last horizon for, you know, really good fly fishing, spay fishing in particular for Kings, Kings that will actively, take the fly aggressively. So Western Alaska and the Alaska Peninsula are the strongholds for this. There's, there's no doubt, you know, be it the connect talk, the good news, the Togiak, a couple of rivers on the Alaska Peninsula, you know, that have got outfitters on them. These are the strongholds and, you know, three factors go into those rivers, abundance of fish, grabby fish, in water type, depth, and speed that lends itself to swinging a fly. Hmm. Whereas you take a river like the Alagnac, which is uh, in western 
or pardon me, in Eastern Bristol Bay, you take the Alagnac as an example. And I guided there in the eighties and we had prolific kingfishing, but we typically were not trying. Well, I would go back later in later years in the nineties and I could have fished them with spay rods, but the runs these fish were in did not, they weren't impossible to catch on spay, but they were probable for sure to catch on single handers out of boats. And that game got super developed in Western Alaska, which I was I was in on that one as as much, possibly more than anybody, was catching them out of boats on single handers on 300, 400, 500 grain sink tips right. out of boats. And we got incredibly proficient at this on the Alagnac in the early nineties when I, when I was over there just as an angler, not as a guide. And then on the connect talk, you know, we kind of started the, you know, the Pied Piper thing over there with that. The connect talk would lend itself to fishing off your feet with spay rods at a level that really had not been seen, um, you know, in the state of Alaska, mm-hmm. whereas the Alagnac, you could do it, but boy, you could do it way better out of a boat with a single hander, you know, say a 10 weight with a 300 grain tip, a 12 weight with a 500 grain sink tip. And we'd typically get in the boat with all, you know, a 10 with a 300 and 11 weight with a 400, a 500 grain line on a 12 weight. And basically the bass boat brigade had begun <laughs> on Kings. And then we would also catch them proficiently at high slack, high tide slack with shooting heads, usually a type four on amnesia coming off a nine or a 10 weight where those Kings are basically, they're traveling in the water column and some of them are six inches below the surface. Some are six inches off the bottom. And if you fly simply in the water column, it's in the game basically it was lake fishing for Kings and it had high probability of hookups and they had the highest percentage of hookup to land that you'd ever see kingfishing is that format of fishing them because you're basically you're retrieving the fly and when that fish takes and turns you're literally stripping it into that fish so they're getting hooked like they typically are never ever going to get hooked and um yeah they're getting stuck and they're getting stuck more effectively than they get stuck on the swing and so you you simply end up with a higher hookup to land ratio in fact i tell you probably hovers around 75 80 percent in that which you know those days are rare on the swing you know 55 to 65 percent on the swing is more like it you know and i'll say that and you know so i'll go out there and have a day with a spay rod and i'll go eight for 10 but the next day i'll go three for 11 <laughs> and so by the time you average out yeah you know 55 to 65 percent is pretty good. And Jim Teeny, who is arguably caught, I, mean, I don't even think it's arguable. Yeah. He's caught the most kings in history in the state of Alaska. No kidding. Um, he has, he's the kingpin of it. There you go. And, uh, um, he once told me, he said, George, if you're laying a 50% of them, you should be doing backflips. <laughs> and I think, I think my, my averages are more in that 55 to 65 on spay rod, but the single hander is, is a higher percentage, particularly out of boats. Um, just FYI. But, um, you know, the Alaska rivers, 
lend themselves to this game. BC has got some really good stuff, although it doesn't have the level of fish, but it's got big fish, it's got fresh fish, and there are some guys up there that specialize in. It becomes a really difficult game in Oregon, Washington, California. Yep. Largely because springers are notoriously crappy biters except on bait. Mm. And the fall Chinook are a little more, are certainly more grabby. But the method, you know, and I'll say that, and somebody will catch a springer on the sandy out of Portland next week yeah. when they're fishing steelhead. Sure. And, you know, somebody will go, that's bullshit. You can do it. Well, yeah, they're caught, but they're not caught like, like they're caught in Alaska, British Columbia. They're no. not. No. And there's no getting around that. And I went to Chile a few years ago and fished a, a particular system, the Petro, and I saw as many kings in that river as I've seen anywhere in Alaska. That's right. But the river, the river was such that my my intel was not as good as I needed it to be. And I'll take part of the blame for that, but I'll largely put most of the blame on the outfitter that that didn't have a historical recognition that those fish being truly stocked from Washington was going to be clue 1A and clue 2B is that those rivers down there look like something out of Southern Oregon or Northern California. And so the spay game down there is completely dependent, frankly, on freshet, meaning rain, high water, peak, dropping water, bingo. You know, the classic scenario. And that that push that pushes those fish out of these big herds that they'll lay in these pools like in the swing with the classic, you know, chartreuse white fly, be it marabou or bunny or intruder, which all my intel had pointed to in conversationally, that that game is completely out the door mm-hmm. when the water's lower, clear, yeah. and those fish are stacked in those runs all la Northern California, Southern Oregon. And when I was down there, I think I was 20 minutes into my first morning and I knew I was had, I knew I was screwed. I knew I wasn't going to hook one all week and I didn't. (laughs) And if not for a couple of spirited days of outrageously good trout fishing, that, that would have been the all time ass ass whipping fishing (laughs) trip of my career. And and I knew I was screwed because I knew I needed nine and ten weight single handers. I needed shooting heads with mono. Uh, I needed an intermediate. I needed a type two, which I was going to have to hunt hard to find. Maybe a type three, huh. and I was going to have to have classic Northern Cal, Southern Oregon Chinook flies. Yeah, small comets, small um, clousers. I didn't have nary a one and there would be no swinging through these fish and getting them to, to eat. You were going to have to go old school out of the pram above them, which I knew how to do. I knew exactly what to do. just, my Intel didn't point to that, but I I was 20 minutes there and my Intel was pretty acute. This is, (laughs) that's amazing. I mean, and you're talking about, I mean, this is similar to, uh, you know, of the, the, what's the movie, uh, rivers of, of a lost coast. 
Yeah, with Tom Skerritt. Yeah, yeah. with Tom Skerritt. I mean, yeah. basically where he shows the eel, he shows all those guys fishing for steelhead yep. and chinook, on, and, and that's what they had. Yep. They had all those prams, and and they yep. were, and that's what you that's what you needed down there. Oh yeah, I mean those fish were stacked in these runs, and and they would literally be in these classic pools that just just sunk of you know this is this chinook water. Well, oh boy, there's one rolling, there's another one, there's yeah. three rolling at once, and you would not. You weren't catching them on a conventional spay approach. You were going to have to go old school. Yeah. And if I went down there again today, I would be outfitted to the to the gills of what would be needed to do it. And yeah, I'd take the spay rod or two if I got that fresh it that would allow and set up for it. But um, yeah. and again, those are Washington stock tule fish, which are nowhere near as drabby as the Alaska or the British Columbia fish. It's just not even a conversational competition. No kidding. So when you look at um when you look at the compare if you had to say uh Chinook versus say those Alaska Chinook that you're talking about versus a, a typical winter steelhead, which one is harder for you to to catch, you know, all things being equal? Oh, I think it's winter steelhead. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because those Alaska kings, you know, whether they've come, you know, whether they're fifty yards into the river system out of tidewater or they're, you know, 200 miles up, up the Golcana from, you know, out of, out of, um, you know, Cordova, those fish are inherently grabby. They're just inherently grabby. And, you know, fly colors certainly have an impact on certain rivers and certain theories, but the fish is fundamentally grabby. The water temperatures are fundamentally in your favor yeah. and winter steelhead are a tougher customer and you know you know that's why when people catch them nowadays you know more so now than you know 20 years ago 25 30 years ago it's a real prize i mean it's you know it's it's the equivalent to shooting a 10 point whitetail buck every time somebody catches one i mean it's a big deal and it's a big deal because it's hard and there's not a lot of them and you're going to have to weather some really poopy weather most days, you know, whether it's, it's, it's cold water, it's cold air, it's cold rain. It's, it's, it's not exactly being on the Deschutes on September 15th. <laughs> no. So yeah, it's a real prize and it's the harder of the game. It's the hardest game out there is that one. And you know, that Alaska summer Chinook thing is much more, you know, along the lines of, you know, fall fishing for steelhead in terms of if we got them here, the odds of us hooking some are pretty high. Yeah, there you go. So what would be if you looked at Alaska, somebody was heading up there and they wanted to swing up some Chinook or have their best chance of standing in the river, swinging a Chinook on a spay, you know, what what river, what basin, where would you send them? Well, first of all, I'd, I'd, I'd ask them some questions because first thing I'd tell them, this is going to be the first thing I'm going to tell you in this podcast is Alaska is not created equal. So when you look at the state, you look at the state, you divide it into, you know, the Southeast corridor, you know, Juneau, Ketchikan, that country. You look at South Central, you know, which is Anchorage and Anchorage South and Anchorage to some degree East. And then you take Western Alaska, which obviously includes Bristol Bay, the Bristol Bay side of things along with far western Alaska, which is where the Kanak talk is and the good news and the Togiak 
in the Alaska Peninsula below King Salmon. These are the, that's the best part of the state to go do this. Yeah, there's exceptions. I mean, you know, I've certainly, I think I've hooked 11 Kings lifetime on the Kenai, including one in the mid 60s, which really couldn't do much with that fish controlled the tempo of that game. But Bristol Bay and Western Alaska and the peninsula is definitely the hotbed. Yep. And if and if you're wanting to go out there, the first thing you got to get your head around is you're going to a camp. You're going on a guided gig. Your, your odds of doing this by yourself, there's a couple places you could try it, but your odds of being successful are not real good unless you had high, high intel or went with somebody who had pulled off the do-it-yourself thing. Yep. Now, I've spent the last seven years on the Nushkak on a DIY basis, but I guided that river in the eighties and I had, you know, 28 years of kingfishing experience in greater Bristol Bay. So you can drop me in somewhere and the odds of me figuring it out, you know, are pretty good. And that's, that's not bragging, David, that's the truth. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you know, DIY is a tough one. Yeah. And it's tough based on, you know, just, you know, we got to have tents. We got to have a boat. We got to have a motor. We got to fool with bears. You know, we get, we, we yeah. you know, it's a tough one. It's easier to go to a guy to camp. And that's the first thing I'm going to tell somebody is what, what's your budget? What's your objectives? What are your expectations? And, you know, once that gets laid out, you know, you, you got various camps in Bristol Bay, Western Alaska, and then you've got various things you can do in South Central. Kenai Peninsula being one of them mm-hmm. and then stuff, you know, in East, you know, uh, South, uh, not South East Alaska, but rather, you know, stuff East of Anchorage, North and East of Anchorage, depending on, you know, what's open and, and, you know, King shortages have really shown up the last five years in Alaska. And, you know, the, the movie that we saw played from, you know, basically Santa Cruz, you know, to Bellingham on the West coast, that that movie is unfortunately starting to show up up there. So so that's, that's one of those amazing. And and I, on this show, I don't get into conservation episode or, you know, topics too much just because, you know, like, like now, right. We're running out of time and I love to hit on the tips and tricks and history, but I mean, that is an amazing thing to me because it just seems like, right. I mean, yeah, you saw like the eel, we mentioned the eel river, right. It was amazing. And then it's, Pretty much they got extirpated. I mean, Alaska is this gigantic millions. I mean, the Bristol Bay thing, right? 60 million, 56 million fish, um, you know, coming back. And, and, you know, of course you got the pebble mine stuff, but it just seems like an unlimited resource. But right there, you just proved it. it you're, we're seeing signs already. Oh, yeah. There's no doubt. I mean, I was on the Nishkak last year and we kind of had the trifecta screwed. And that was low return, all-time high-level, all-time high-level commercial boats in the bay, um, 70 to 80 degree weather daily, and dropping clear water. It was, you know, it was, it was four factors that we weren't going to overcome. And I think I hooked 11 kings in nine days, which is the worst, you know, week plus of king fishing I've seen in 35 years. Any one of those factors created a kill shot for our space success. I mean, we could have survived probably, you know, 
three out of four of them, but we weren't going to survive four out of four of them. And I'm not saying that it's going to be that poor this year because I highly doubt it will be. Um, you know, these things are rarely do the same thing two years in a row. So I anticipate it being better. I'm going to be in on the Kola Peninsula, the Russian, instead oh, of wow. up there this time. There you go. So I'll I'll have to hear about it. <laughs> yeah, you may want a podcast after that. <laughs> yeah, one, but, I think so. I'll bring um, it back on. <laughs> yeah, that might be a good one. Um, yeah, but it's you know, there's just there's numerous factors, but you know, in a lot of ways, the cruel lessons that started in California and worked north. Are, are certainly appearing on Alaska soil in, you know, people saw the preview, the preview was California, um, in Washington state and Oregon is probably the least affected of these three Pacific states, but we all saw the, the previews. We saw the movie and, you know, everybody kept eating popcorn yeah, <laughs> and it's just, you know, I could go deeper into it with, no, you know, my, my no, opinion, no. but I'll, I'll, I'll save yeah, that for let's, another let's, day. Let's save that, George, because, um, you know, I mean, I've got a zillion questions I'm not going to be able to get to you today, you know, and I do hope to get you back on down the line, ho- hopefully, because, um, you I'll know, lay I, a few more on me. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let, let's, um, so a couple of things, you know, before I get out of here, um, you know, I mean, I think this, this Chinook thing, obviously what we touched on is I'm trying to, I'm, you know, like I said, I'm trying to maybe get a trip going up there and, and yeah, I'm just kind of thinking like, what is the best trip? You know, do you go for a, you know, an August and try to get a bunch of species or do you go for a, you know, kind of mousing up rainbows early? And I, you know, I guess that's something I'll, I'll figure out. So, you know, I'll kind of leave that for another thing. I did want to touch on a couple. Um, we had a couple questions from the Facebook group and um, Troy Pierce, I mentioned you were come on the show and he said um, he wanted to know how you handle the eat. And this is, I think, more specifically with steelhead. Sure. Well, you know, I've, I've fished everything in Najimus outside of Atlantic salmon, which that's going to get fixed here in June. Um, you know, the, the tactic there, I think, is universal. And that is, let them, as Eric Newfeld once famously said, let them, let them chew the gum. <laughs> let them chew the gum. And, and, you know, a swung fly, you know, typically a steelhead or a Chinook, I mean, occasionally they just bomb blast it, you know, yeah. same with the sea run Brown. They just bomb blast it, meaning they, they basically violently yank the rod in one, one grab, one, one movement. And, you know, that fish is largely going to get hooked every time based on the violence and the turn and you know those factors. But most eats and as a gear guide in Alaska, I learned this, very quickly and definitely firsthand is a typical Chinook or steelhead. He grabs, he drops, he grabs, he drops, he grabs, he turns. And, you know, when, when you're watching that, you know, that rod and you're holding that thing and I'm one of the, I don't play loop, you know, the, that's the, the great, you know, coin flip, right? You know, do you have a loop and you drop your loop or you pin it to the cork? I'm a cork pinner. And it's no, no loop for me. And, um, in, in my basis of that is I want contact. Um, but essentially, you know, when I, when I've fished with people over the years, whether I was guiding or fishing, you know, I'll grab somebody's shirt, Steve, up around their bicep. And I'll say, this is how this is going to go. <laughs> and I'll tug it. I'll give it a tug and it'll be a, you know, a light tug. 
and I'll hit a second tug and a third tug, you know, you can see their collar coming off their neck. And I said, that's the tug you hit. You don't hit those first two. Yep. You watch those first two and you, you mentally get your head around the fact that you're going to generally see a light tug, a medium tug and a kill tug. Hmm. And sometimes the kill tug drops too. And, but normally the kill tug is the turn where that fish has swung out on that fly. He's grabbed it. He dropped it. He kept going with it. He grabbed it. He dropped it. Third time he grabs it and he, he turned and that grab might physically leave his mouth. Oftentimes I don't think it leaves the mouth. It's, it's crunch. Hmm. Keep swimming, crunch again. And it creates contact, right? Yeah. And so by pin into that cork, it's my telephone line, right? My telephone line is right to the collar. Mm-hmm. The collar's Mr. Chinook or, or a steelhead or a C. Run Brown for that matter. Uh, blah, blah, blah. And so it's that one that they literally want to take the rod away from you. That's the one where that fish turned yeah. and, and is going back to where it came from. That's the one you hit. That's it. And you got to be patient, and you can't trout strike, and, and you you got to do all those things that most people generally know about. And I'll tell you when you when you're guiding in in Alaska and you're watching plugs because plugs will teach you a lot about a lot of things, and you know some of the most dangerous uh, anadromous fishermen, fly fishermen, whether they're single hander guys or or spay guys. They, they came from a gear background. In fact, there's, there's, I can show you case after case after case of the most lethal fly fishermen for steelheads and Chinook in history. They all have a gear background because yeah. gear teaches you a lot of things. It, it, number one, it teaches you unequivocally where they live. And number two, it teaches you strike patterns and plugs are a great teacher on what, what these fish do. And that's why guides put, but plug rods and rod holders so clients don't grab them prematurely. And it's for that exact reason of what I just laid out for you on a fly strike. It's exactly what's going on. It's a different theater of operations with the same, same format, same outcome. So that there's the answer to that one. There you go. What else we got for questions? Oh, good, good. Let, let's, uh, I'm going to wrap it. I got a little rapid fire round here. I think we can take you out of here that, uh, and I like to okay. start, I like to start off with the, the 222, which is your top two flies, top two tips, top two resources. And if you think about, this might be easy for you on flies. Let's, let's just stick with, um, God, this is a tough one because I, I, I'm always thinking steelhead, but we've been talking about Chinook. If you had to pick your top two flies, could you pick two for either of those species? Would you, would you, uh, what would you like to go? Well, with? let's just take let's just take steelhead and, and yeah. let's go with that. I, I'd go with any sort of intruder or bunny type critter. And for winter steelhead, I want orange red. Okay. And for summer steelhead, I want purple. And it could be purple with chartreuse. It could be purple and white, but it's going to have purple in it. So okay. summer runs are getting purple. Winter runs for me are getting red. Orange is the number one choice. That's amazing. And that's great because that's kind of the opposite of what sometimes you hear, you know, orange. Well, I guess you don't hear oranges and reds necessarily as people tend to say purple blacks for winter, but you like the orange red. 
I'm taking orange red, sir. Awesome. That's Come awesome. Come look at my box. <laughs> I know. That's good. Good. Well, maybe we get a picture of your box here sometime too. Um, so what about tips? Let's just stick with Chinook since we've been talking. Well, let's just say swinging. Do you have two tips yeah. you would give somebody maybe that's struggling out there to get their first fish on a swing? Two tips you can give them to help them, you know, get that first fish? Tips or sink tips? Yeah, no, no, no. I, let, yeah, let's just stick with the actual tips, a good a tip, tip and trick. Well, I think it's, you know, number one, go. You know, nothing gets caught on the porch, right? Yeah. So a guy's got to go. And winter steelhead, you know, or uh, somewhat is like archery elk hunting, which I do a fair amount of. You, you're going to put in your time, and there's going to be times when you want to just call it and leave and never go back. Uh, but yet by the next day, you can't wait to go again, right? Yep. And so the first tip is simply go. And second tip is to not get too hung up on reports hmm. because by the time the first great reports are going to come across the wavelength, somebody's experienced those great reports. They had to experience it to put them out. So again, that kind of goes back yep. to the first one. Just get, go, go fish. Yep. And, you know, conditions, sure, you know, in this, this winter scene, you know, we'd love to see a rain. We'd love to see the river rise a little bit and see it start to drop, see that, that nice green come in. That's ideally the time to go. And that requires flexibility, which means you may or may not be able to pull that one off. So inevitably just go and you become, you become the great report. Yep. Yep. Those are awesome. Now that's a good, that's a good tip for sure. What about resources? There's so much out there these days and obviously YouTube, there's tons of, you know, tons of people we talked about have, I'm sure, content. Any, if somebody wanted a good resource on swinging flies, what, what would, where would you send them? Well, Dick Hogan has written a couple of fabulous books mm-hmm. over the course of time. Trey Combs wrote some of the best early works. Yep. Although, you know, some of the techniques in there, um, you know, they certainly worked in the day. Uh, but a lot of that was pursuant to, you know, what the lines were available, I could tell you. My first uh, through winter steel had I caught on a fly. You would absolutely fall down if I told you how I set those casts up. <laughs> you know, they were quarter upstream with double men's, and you'd think, well, man, that fly was trailing the line. Yeah, it was, and I caught three my first winter. <laughs> and I know that fly was behind the sink tip. Yeah. Um, you wouldn't exactly set your game up that way today. No. But, you know, it, you know, I did books from Deck Hogan, from Trey Combs. Yeah. Um, and then there's a host of things, you know, on the internet and, and everybody who puts something out, you know, on YouTube or, you know, the various and sundry channels of, of viewing, there's going to be something to glean from every single one of these. But I'll tell you one of the best ones. If, if I was going to tell you something to absolutely, if somebody said, man, I'm just, I want as much of this as I can get my mitts on. Mm-hmm. I'd say, go watch Skagit Master yeah. 2. Go watch Skagit Master 2 with Scott Howe because you're going to watch Darth Vader at work. <laughs> and that's, you know, Jeff Mishler has done an absolute world-class job with those Skagit Master films. And they all have something to offer. But... The one, the number two, with I'm pretty sure number two was with Scott Howe. 
that one truly stands out to me. There you go. And that would be one that I would tell anybody, you want to watch something and watch a guy that is really a pillar of, of the sport and to a large degree is unknown to, you know, this, this new group of millennial fly steelhead fly guys. Um, this guy is really, you know, this, this guy's a pillar and I would go watch that. I would tell you unequivocally, go watch that guy. At work. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. I think that that resource came up. Um, I think, uh, I want to say James Millard from OPST. He mentioned that Scott, Howe, that same one, the number two. And it was funny because he noted that he loved that, uh, Scott showed where he was parking his car sometimes on the video and he was able to find the sweet spots <laughs> on some of the rivers he was fishing. So he was, we were kind of joking about that, but, um, yeah, let, let's, let's wrap this up real quick here. And this one is going to be maybe a hard one. I'm not sure for you, but you have some state records in hunting. You got all sorts of, it sounds like you're just a crazy hunter, um, addicted to it. So hunting, fishing, you can only do one thing for the rest of your life. What is it? Well, they're seasonal, David. So I'll end ah, up doing both. No, you got You got to choose. This is it. You got to choose one. <laughs> I don't know. That's a tough one. It would come down to, it would come down to swinging a spay rod yep. for whatever an edgemous animal choosing versus archery, deer hunting. That's it. And, um, I, I need to mull on that one. I need to, you know, I got manufacturers that are probably going to listen huh, to this. That's right. Okay. Day, okay. I'll, I'll let you, I'll let you, you know, I want, the, I want sage and sick gear to both come out of it. That's feeling right. Really good. That's right. I'll let you, off the, I'll, let, I'll let you off the hook on that one. I, I think it's pretty funny because I always use that comparison. I'm not a bow hunter. I, I do some rifle hunting, but I always know I, that's the thing. I mean, I'm a, dead, a hardcore fly fisherman and I just know that bow hunting is the next thing for me. If I'm going to really find time, you know, oh, yeah. you know, it it's, is. it's kind of the similar thing, it's right? The it's the spay. It's yep. the spay of hunting. It's the spay There's of hunting. no two ways about it. So no, I appreciate yep. that. I know. And that was one of the questions. So, so maybe quick before we get out of here too. So can you talk about the Sage, other companies that you, um, you rep for? Yeah, I mean, Sage on the fly fishing theater is is at the top of the heap, along with Rio, Reddington. You know, we work for Smith, and we are the fly fishing sunglass division of things. Yep. And um, we've got Tibor Reels out of Miami, you know, the, the foremost saltwater reel choice. And um, we've got some, another big line for us, which brings just fabulous product. Um, to the consumer level is fish pond out of mm. Denver yep. and a fun company called rep your water, which, uh, does a lot for hats and conservation oriented, mm-hmm. um, things. And then on the hunting side, we're led by Sitka gear and crispy boots out of Utah. So that's kind of our lineup of attack. There you go. There you go. Okay. And, yeah. and what about thinking back to sports? Did you play any sports throughout your life and anything? What would have been the sport you, you would go pro in, if anything, other than fishing and hunting? Well, I played, you know, I played in a lot of things. I don't think I starred in anything, but uh, although I did make 55 free throws in a, in a row once. What? Uh, that's my, that's yeah, I made 95 out of a hundred. I shot a hundred straight because Holy. I was hurt that week and I shot a hundred a day for five days in a row, Dave. I think my worst was 87 and my best was 95 wow. out so, of a hundred. So you're a basketball. I would say well, you're a basketball I, I star. enjoyed it, but it's six foot, six foot white guy probably ain't going far these days. Um, <laughs> you know, Steve Nash's genetics missed me, but yeah. 
Um, yeah, I played football, basketball, some baseball, some golf, and ran track. And I probably, I probably got the furthest in things in track, actually. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And if you had to pick one that you, you know, professionally, you would love to be pro in right now, what, what would that be out of all those? I think I'd say the same thing my father said, and that's golf. And my dad yeah. was very, very close to being pro-level golfer. I mean, it was right on the edge. Yep. Yep. That's, that's awesome. All right, George, well, I'll let you get out of here. Hey, before we get out of here, um, do you have one takeaway from our conversation was uh, maybe, um, I thought I loved it, but do you have a takeaway from what we talked about today? Anything you want to leave everybody with here? We need another hour or two, so we'll be doing more. There's your take. Awesome. That. Awesome. That's what I like to hear. Nice. All right, man. Um, so, hey, in the next six to 12 months, anything we can expect from you or any of the companies you represent, anything you want to throw out there? Oh, there's there's lots coming. There'll, yeah. there'll be lots coming between now and mid-August on the fly fishing front. And, um, you know, new things are coming out of Sitka that it'll start hitting in May. Those are probably two of the bigger highlights. And, you know, I start archery hunting late August. So, what, you know, stay tuned. Oh, cool. All right. Good stuff. And, uh, yeah, if people want to find you, they can go to on Instagram. State of Spay is the best place to take a look at what you got going. Yeah, or Mule Deer 16. Okay, Mule Deer 16. All right. I'll put links those to all the. I got two of them. Oh, yeah. cool. I'll put links to those in the show notes. And, um, yeah, George, just want to thank you for coming on. I, I know you're, uh, you're heading out the door, and I appreciate, uh, I've been wanting to get this conversation on the books for a while and, and the history piece. If we just would have touched on that Northwest Spay thing, I would have been happy. So I'm glad we dug into a bunch of this. And, yeah, until the next one, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll keep up with you and talk to you then. Right on, Dave. All right, see you, George. Take care. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes, all the links we covered, just go to wetflyswing.com slash 131. Please take a quick look at the easiest way to support this podcast and connect with uh, one of our local events. The Wet Fly Swing Member Society is the best way to get uh, free access to local and online classes plus bonuses from our partner companies. And I know I noted that little bonus at the start, um, and here it is. If you go to wetflyswing.com slash pod member, P-O-D-M-E-M-B-E-R, you'll get a two-month free trial access to the members group, and you can check it out and kick the tires a little bit and see if... Uh, if uh, the conversation there is, is up to snuff for you. So I wanted to thank you again for stopping by to check out the show today. Looking forward to catching up soon. Hope maybe see you online or on the river. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com. And if you found this episode helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes.